Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jimmy, if you don't know me, I'm one of the ministers here at All Saints, and it's so good to be with you all, our church community together, our 10 a.m. congregation, our 6 p.m. congregation, here together, meeting this morning. Uh, I'm really excited for this next six weeks, I love meeting with God's people, and I love preaching to God's people, and what we're going to do now is we're going to reflect together on Ephesians chapter 2, so keep that passage open, and let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you call your people to gather by your Spirit. We are not here by accident. We are here because your Spirit's at work in us. And so we pray that you will continue to work in us as we hear from your Word this morning. And we ask that you would teach us more and more what it means to be united as your people. You would teach us more and more what it means to be saved and what you are creating in saving your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A social uh, research article produced by Ipsos Mori Social Research uh, did a survey, a global survey, across many, many, many countries around the world to work out how divided our world is. That's what they were asking. They concluded that three quarters of the world, those who participated in the survey, thought their country was divided. And that a majority in every single country they surveyed said that They were more divided now than they were 10 years ago. And the thing that divides them the most, the thing that kept coming up, was political tension and political views and a a growing divide between the left and the right view of politics. We live in a world that seems to be becoming more and more divided as the day comes. And and though this, this survey kind of confirms that, I think most of us can feel that tension in our own life day to day as well. We have felt the political division and tension in our own life as we have come across the last 10 years of political um, issues with Labour and Liberal governments constantly uh, rolling out new Prime Ministers every single year or so. We often see as well racial division as well. Uh, We've seen throughout the United States the Black Lives Matter movement and the counter movements, the Charlottesville riots as well. We've seen race become a much more divisive issue. And I think the one that's going to be coming up next and is already here particularly is our generational division as well. We now have terms like OK Boomer (laughs) and the stereotype of millennials being lazy, entitled and stupid and think they know it all. We are seeing people, the generations, becoming more and more divided as young people no longer want to hear from older people about their views about how the world should be run and older people have no time for young people because all they see is young people who, who think they are entitled to whatever that they think is right. We need to take a step back for a moment and realize that our world is just super divided and the question is, is what do we do about it? The irony is that a number of years ago, back in the 90s, when the internet first launched, people thought this would be our salvation. This would be the means by which we'd have uh, freedom, equality, democracy would flourish because everyone would be connected to this thing called the internet and everyone would be able to share their views and their life online. But we fast forward 30 years later and what do we see? Division is just compounded even further. As social media has come up as well, We see that people are now rubbing against each other more frequently online and therefore their differences are becoming more and more obvious and therefore people are becoming more and more divisive. This is even compounded in the last five or six years or so. I remember when I was at college in around 2014 or so, uh, you could post online on Facebook about your views on marriage or abortion and people wouldn't necessarily destroy you for it. 
They wouldn't think that you were a bigot. They might think you're wrong. They might think you're a bit silly or stupid and outdated, but they wouldn't destroy you for it. But when the plebiscite has come around, and even today, these days, if you post any kind of view like that, that's Christian online, you will get hammered for it. You will get destroyed for it. People will slam you down as a bigot. We live in a very, very divisive society, and our world, the internet, is only compounded that even more so. And the question is, is what do we do about this? What's the hope for our world? We can't create it. The internet failed at doing that. The other thing is just, just be tolerant or grow in your perspective or be educated. That seems to be the solution people seem to think. But I think the issue goes much, much deeper. An issue that Ephesians chapter 2 touches on. The issue of sin and its influence on our life. We read in, in Ephesians 2 verse, verse 3, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were living for ourselves. Our world is the epitome of doing what is right in our own eyes. And then when we do what is right in our own eyes, we live divisively. We live against and categorize ourselves against other people. And the problem is, is that we are following those cravings or desires. And the problem is, is therefore, we are dead in those sins. That's the reality here. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. And we see here in verse 2 that, that the reality is that the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, is the one that's creating this culture, this world in which is creating this division. We are breathing in this toxic kind of culture, this life that's there that says you do whatever you want to do, what you think is right, and live for yourself. And it's creating a death-like state for us. What is the solution, though? What is the hope for us, though, if we want to be saved, if we want to change? It can't be that we just simply change our minds, and we know we can't do it ourselves. The Bible's solution is much more deeper than that. We need to be recreated. We need to have new life. And that's where Paul goes in this chapter. And there are two things I want to look at this morning that help us to get to that point where we understand the nature of salvation as creative, and then secondly, understand the nature of what salvation creates. And I think what salvation creates is something that's so important for us here this morning, and I think in some ways we're seeing this morning what salvation creates, and why what it creates is not just simply good for us here at Media Church, but it's good for our world as it watches on. A divisive world that can look on to this congregation here and see young and old people mean together united under the one banner of Jesus Christ. So firstly, understanding the nature of salvation as being creative. So broadly speaking, God's work of saving us from our sin is His work and not our work. We know that. We are saved by grace through faith. We trust that what He has done for us is enough for us to be saved. We don't do anything on our own merit. We trust in Christ and what He's done for us. We have shame and sin in our life. And Christ deals with that on the cross for us. And we often have a very kind of like individualistic relationship with God. It's me and God, and God saved me through Jesus Christ. But what we see here is there's more to it than that, that salvation is first and foremost creative. Something new happens. We read in verse 4 that he made us alive 
with Christ. And we see in verse nine, uh, sorry, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork or creation or workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Something new has begun in what God is doing through Jesus. He has saved his people, but salvation has not simply been rescued from one thing to another out of a bad situation into a good situation. Rather, God has remade us, recreated us, made us new into the kind of people that he wants us to be. Therefore, that means that being saved by God doesn't mean that we are left off the hook, so to speak, so we can do whatever we want now. No, we're saved by God, saved by grace for a new purpose, a new life, one which we live and honor Him. Salvation is a sign of what God is starting to do that is new in this world. But the question is, is what exactly does salvation create? What are we now that we are saved by God? That's the second thing we're looking here, understanding what salvation creates. Salvation is creative and communal, we see. See, in verse 4, we are made alive together or with Christ, even though we're dead in our sins. So salvation is communal. We often have that individualistic view of salvation, but what we see here is that Paul is talking to a church and he's using the plural form, the you, or he's talking about how we together, we, us, are alive together in Christ. It's not just about you and me before God, but rather us together before God. And then we go on in verse 11 and 12 to describe a situation in which one group of people was once separated from God and from other people and now they've been brought near together through what Christ has done. We read in verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once it was just the Israelite people who had the promises of God. It was only just them who could have relationship with God. But now the Gentiles can come near through what Christ has done, through his work. The Gentile people are no longer separated from God. They are no longer without hope and no longer without peace with God. They know him. The two have become one. And notice it isn't, you know, that the Gentiles have joined the Israelite club or that the Israelite people now have to change and become more like the Gentiles. The two have truly become something one, but also something new. We see in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law of its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. The two become one and make something new. This is a little bit hard to understand necessarily. It's kind of like imagine two rivers coming together, they meet and then they become one. They're no longer understand, understood as known as the two separate rivers, but they become one. It'd be kind of like the, the, the USA and the Russia coming to form together to make one new nation. And that whole idea is just crazy in of itself to think about doing. 
but the two are becoming one. Now, it's not that they, they lose their identity or they lose themselves in this process, but rather their ethnic and social and economic identity markers are greatly relativized in this new identity that's formed in Jesus Christ as their king. When they come to see Jesus, they recognize that they are people in need of forgiveness because of their sin and their shame. They recognize that what Christ has done for them, he has done for all people because no one is without sin. No matter who they belong to, no matter what nation they are a part of, no matter what social status on the ladder they are, no one is without sin, but also no one is without the opportunity of grace and mercy. And so therefore, they are all in the same boat, so to speak. And God, in Jesus Christ, saves them all, bringing them together in himself. But what do you do with people who you would call your enemy? I mean, this is the issue here. Jews and Gentiles consider themselves as opposing and enemies towards each other. What do you do when this hostility is existing there? Well, Paul says in verse 14 again that in Christ Jesus, this hostility has broken down, creating peace. That reminder of sin, the fact that I am no more sinful than this other person is, no matter who they are, to me, nationally, ethnic, uh, ethnicity, or socially, this person is no more sinful than me. And so therefore, this person is no more deserving of grace than me as well. Or just as deserving as grace as me. And God then calls us together, calls them together to say you can have peace because of what Christ has done for you. The cross is the great leveler in human history. The cross is the what says no division exists because you're all sinful and you're all in need of grace and salvation. And so therefore, we are able to come together, no matter who the enemy we might think is. God is able to save and call all people to know him and greatly relativize the issue of sin and its, and its work. Paul wants the church to commit to this expression of salvation and the question is, is do we? Are we those who are united together no matter what differences might exist between us do we truly see in light of the fact that jesus is our king that that our identity markers whether they're social or ethnic or whatever are they greatly relativized in light of the fact that we belong to jesus as our king the temptation of course is that we would structure ourselves organize ourselves as a church pragmatically according to our age, or gender, or our generation, or ethnicity. That we'd organize ourselves like that and split ourselves up so that we would fit in with those people that we are meeting with. But Paul says that we should organize ourselves theologically according to what God is creating. God is creating something new. Where all kinds of people are gathering together, united by what God is doing in Christ Jesus. And the thing is, he is thinking, Paul, of the local church gathering when he writes this letter. He is thinking of people who, who are different, 
and meeting together in the same place, in the same spot. We see that in verse 14. That's why he talks about the issue of tension, hostility, that this, this, this is dealt with in Christ Jesus because when you get two different people who don't like each other, there's sure to be hostility there. But he's saying that in Christ Jesus, you can deal with that. But also in verse 21 and 22, we read that... that um, where is it? In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In the first instance, he's talking about the church in its entire scope and nature. But in verse 22, he narrows it down to them, their local church gathering, saying God is building you up. You are these kinds of people. You are these kinds of people that are different and vastly different from each other, but God is bringing you together in Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone to build you up that you might reflect what God is doing that is new. And so the question again is, do we reflect that together as a church? Because I think we need to. Not because it's simply just right, but it's good for our world. It's good for a world that says, okay, boomer. And it's good for a world that says that young people have no, we have no time for and they're entitled and stupid and silly to see this right now. An intergenerational church coming together to worship the one and true living God. This is good news for our world. This shows a world so divided, so broken of what God can do, of what the power of the gospel can do. We don't want to organize ourselves according to our age or preferences. We want to organize ourselves according to what God is creating. Now, there are certainly challenges to doing this. We've got to decide how, what we do as a church in terms of the music we play, the style we use, the structures we have at church, and of course, we must serve the wider culture that we want to reach the church to reflect to them who God is and what he is doing here. But we must commit ourselves to being united. That's Jesus' prayer in John 17. To be united, to be one, as they are one. And when Paul talks about that kind of unity here in Ephesians 2, he is thinking of the local church gathering. He is thinking of when you come together, this is what it should look like. I do believe this is good. I do believe this is the right thing. This is a great thing that what we're doing here. Because we're reflecting to a world that unity is possible. A world that wants to categorize people according to age and preferences and gender, whatever it might be, we're saying, no, 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 we organize ourselves according to what God is doing. And even though we might be different from one another, even though we might even struggle with each other, even though we might even be a tension with each other, we seek unity and peace because of Christ and what he has done for us. That is good news for our world. That our world can go, what are you doing what do you have that I don't? That's what our world needs. And so let me ask you again. Are you committed to that? Are you committed to how hard that's going to be that time? It's not easy. Are you committed to an intergenerational church? That's why we are doing this as a church over the next six weeks where we're trying this kind of service because we want to be a church 
that reaches our world, that reaches Balgala and shows a world that is so divisive they can be united in Christ Jesus. And the picture of what that looks like in Ephesians 2 is amazing. I'll read that to you again. In the whole building joined together, rise to become a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are to, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A church that is being built together, in which the Spirit of God is dwelling, is a church that is united despite any kind of difference, a church that is seeking to reach out and include people who are different from them, no matter what age or preference or style or whatever it might be, who seeks peace as the goal and shows forth grace in Jesus Christ. Let's commit ourselves to being this intergenerational church. Let's commit ourselves to welcoming everyone into this room on a Sunday morning. The worst thing I think we could say, and I'm sure someone said it to you at some point in your life when you walk to a church, they've said it to me. The worst thing you can say to someone is, you'd probably prefer the night service. You'd probably prefer the earlier morning service. That's the worst thing we can say. At that moment, all we're doing is just jumping back into the world's categories of organizing people. We're not like that. We organize ourselves according to what God is making in us, according to what God is creating anew. Such people who walk in who are young or old, doesn't matter, whatever it is, they're different. We say, welcome. Come be part of the family. Come be part of what God is doing in creating us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you that it not only just saves us from our guilt and shame, but it calls us to a new life in which we get to reflect your glory and your power and what you are doing. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us to see that unity and peace is of the utmost importance for us as the church. That it is your prayer, in Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we'd be one as you are one. We ask, Lord, that in the hardship and the difficulty of organizing ourselves according to what you are doing, that we would be patient and gracious, kind. We pray, Lord, that we would desire to be this so that we might show the world of what you are creating in Jesus Christ, of what you are doing, of what is possible, the peace that can be enjoyed. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.